Hello, and welcome to the BPL Podcast. My name is Josh, and this is a unique episode, as you may have gathered by the title and description. We had a special program on Wednesday with three Eastern European experts about the current crisis in Ukraine. This isn't a complete context or a history of these countries or conflict, but it gives a lot of insight into this war as it stands now. So we thought our podcast listeners would like to experience this discussion. In addition to this great conversation, we'll be gathering a lot of great resources of information and ways to help as suggested by our speakers. So look out for that on our website and um, social media platforms in the days to come. Here is Theodora, Mariana, and Makita's discussion. Thank you, uh, Whitney and Paige, uh, for, uh, and Josh and Zach for making uh, this event possible on such a short notice. And I really want to take Miki, uh, to thank Mikita and Mariana for being so responsive when I contacted them, because we also understand that part of the conflict is also a war over information and how information is being presented and who gets to control the narrative. So um, what we are also going to do here is speak a little bit about the rhetoric, the language, how do we recognize misinformation and what do we do to counter it? This could be something all of us can do. Um, and that's part of what we're going to talk about. So the way we're envisioning this is a conversation. I am a historian of the Balkans, uh, not of Ukraine and um, that part of the post-Soviet space. So I'm going to serve mostly as a moderator, although I'm also going to offer some um perspective uh, as a historian of uh, war and um, minorities and refugee movements uh, in Europe, in, in modern European uh, history. And I thought we might want to start by recognizing where are we today, one week, uh, almost exactly one week uh, after um, Vladimir Putin declared war uh, on Ukraine by announcing his so-called special, special military of, operation, which is clearly nothing else but invasion and aggression of um, Ukraine. So perhaps um, one of you, Mikita, Mariana, might want to just tell us where are we today? What, did, what are the biggest challenges facing Ukraine. Uh, both of you also have family in the region. You are constantly in touch with your family and friends, and you have very good sense of what's going on in the country and in the virtual space. Can you give us um, your assessment? Um, sure. Um, it's I'm from Kharkiv originally, so from eastern Ukraine, and this is the second largest city in Ukraine and the city that's currently being bombed and shelled. And um, my family is still there. Um, they're running out of food, um, out of grain, especially. They have uh, little kids, my, my cousin's children, who are, will, will have soon nothing to eat. Uh, there is no food in the stores because the, all of the supplies are being bombed and shelled by Russians, and they refuse to open the humanitarian corridor currently. Uh, when they bombed the central square called Freedom Square in Kharkiv, the largest square in Europe, uh, there was a convoy of uh, volunteers delivering supplies and they hit the convoy as well um, and everybody died. So the situation currently was the was the, the both cities, uh, Kharkiv and Kiev, are super important for uh, Putin's effort to take uh, over Ukraine. And uh, these are the cities that are suffering quite a bit right now. And also there is this effort to come from the south of Ukraine as well. So Russian troops are uh, moving steadily. You probably heard about the, the huge uh, uh, motor, motorized convoy that stretches for 50 miles uh, that goes from the south towards, uh, towards Kiev. Uh, there are casualties on both sides. Unfortunately, uh, civilians are also... Uh, perishing and uh, there are people hiding in bomb shelters. My advisor uh, from Alma Mater, she's, uh, she's in the shelter. People are afraid to leave. And there are four people um, died in the first uh, hours in the morning um, in Kharkiv when they're, they were trying to leave shelter to get some water and they got killed um, by, by, by direct shelling. So um, what's happening is a, is, is a tragedy. Uh, what's happening is, is, a, is, a, is a huge destruction, is something that will be eventually part of the textbook, history textbooks, I believe. 
Um, but unfortunately, we are part of that history and I'm in contact with people who are experiencing all of that. And it's, it's extremely difficult to um, not to have an emotional response. Yeah, so um, my family is originally from Crimea and I am not allowed to talk to them about a lot of things because there's always a fear of uh, being heard from, you know, by special services. But I grew up in southeast of Ukraine, a city called Zaporizhia. And as of now, it is a relatively untouched area. There are some, there is some fighting on the outskirts of it because there is like an airspace. But uh, the thing that concerns me a lot is uh, several attempts as of now to take control of um, a nuclear plant in Anerhadar, which is in the same region. And it's, if I'm not mistaken, the biggest nuclear plant in Europe. And um, I've seen several reports in the morning that uh, the locals actually um, not fought back, but scared off uh, lots of military. So there were several attempts to enter the city. People fought back with no weapons. Um, so that is a good part, but we know that this is one of the targets now. And if not damaging it, then taking control of it will be um, a strategic move because this is the area that Ukrainian military will definitely not fight and will not damage. And if you are familiar, the Chernobyl uh, nuclear plant is also taken over already and the, um, the crew, the staff are held hostages. We do not have any access to them. We do not know what is happening, but we do know that there are spikes of um, radiation in the region and we link it to uh, increased presence of different kind of machinery that probably uh, move the dust in the air. Um, but there is no information about leakage. And what I'm also familiar with as of now is the borders with countries where Ukrainians actually escape now. So Poland and Slovakia are the ones that I am in most contact with. And uh, it is a challenging time for those people who want to, who have no place to stay in Ukraine anymore and who are going to look for a new house, for a shelter. There are 30 hour wait lines. There's very little provision. There's very little uh, place to stay. There's very little place to sleep. Um, most of those people are elderly people, women, pregnant women, children, those who are actually allowed to leave the country. Um, so this is the um, this is where the humanitarian crisis is also slowly, gradually developing. So we have two major cities that are damaged and bombed constantly, where people hide in shelters, like you mentioned, and have no access to food and water. But we also have people that are in a relatively um, stable or um, untouched areas that share some very similar fears, but also experiences of being deprived of basic things like food, healthcare, sleep, warmth, because it's Ukraine is a very cold country too, and it's very cold still. And if I might add, just, just briefly, um, a friend of mine was telling me that, that they, they went to uh, Google Earth and look at the Polish border, Poland and Ukraine border, and there's lines of people that stretch for hours uh, trying to get out, and then there are lines of trucks from the Polish side to bring the humanitarian aid, and there's huge line, and it's uh, virtually standstill. So there's this um, technical organizational detail where moving people west and moving the supplies and aid east and how to get it through the checkpoints. Um, and also I've heard very uh, disturbing reports from the border where uh, as people crossing the border, there are opportunists, uh, human traffickers who pick on uh, females and children and they claim that they will provide shelter and then they're taken in the cars in um, unknown direction and people uh, obviously are desperate for housing, for shelter, and this is classic situation. And I think maybe Theodora could address it from her point of view with the refugees where they're the at the most vulnerable and they're being exploited potentially. I'm listening to you and I'm just thinking, first of all, we have seen the heroic reaction response of the Ukrainian people who have rallied behind their president, who have um, 
defied the Russian aggression and who are fighting against this, that aggression. Uh, and it's really, we, we do want to put this in perspective. The recent polls are really striking. 90% of all Ukrainians support their president. Uh, and 90%, I think this is about the right number, say that Russia will be defeated. They are saying that, uh, you know, they believe that they're going to I think it's closer to 70, but is still it? it's it's, mm-hmm. it's an amazing number. It's a very optimistic perception of uh Yeah, I mean, so uh, Ukrainians are rallying, right? I mean, they're rallying in this this place of patriotism. They're rallying in support of their government. They're rallying in support of their armed forces. But I'm also thinking about the agonizing decisions families have to make. Because anyone who is in this situation has to be thinking, what is next? What do I do? Do I stay and fight? Or do I pick my family and try to get out while I still can. And what we're seeing is these images from Kiev, from other places, right? People trying to board trains and get out of the city before the Russian army enters because they fear what is going to happen. Um, And they are also afraid that their window of opportunity to leave might close. So they have to make this decision now. You also know most likely that the Ukrainian government is not allowing males aged 18 to 60 to leave the country. So many families are making this painful decision, leaving the father behind. And then the women and the children are trying to get to safety. I have a 17-year-old. I have been thinking if I were there, I would probably be trying to get my 17-year-old out of the country as soon as possible. I'm I'm just trying to honestly think what decisions people are making in these situations. Because you want to keep, I have to imagine, you know, you want to keep the big picture in mind, but you also have family obligations and you also have decisions to make about the safety of your family. I'm also thinking about these mayors who are defying the Russians and who are saying, we're not going to, we're not going to surrender. We're not going to, to, to let you in. But then at some point they have to make the call that they actually will save lives and that perhaps surrendering is a better choice because you don't want the Russians to be shelling civilian areas. And it's not clear what exactly is happening in Kherson right now, but it seems that the mayor has actually announced that the city, right? That's the latest I saw on the news that the mayor has announced that he's going to allow the Russian army uh, uh, in Kherson. Um, so I just can't imagine all the impossible choices uh, people have uh, to make in these circumstances. Does anyone want to reflect on anything? Anyone? I mean, because you also have. I think the mobilization level has been extremely high. Uh, there are pictures circulating of eight-year-old uh, people coming and signing up for territorial defense. Uh, people who are your computer programmers that you could hardly imagine picking up the gun. They've never seen it in real life, maybe in computer games. And they're taking this gun and they're they're trying to defend their country. And BBC, I believe, just had an interview with uh, one of those territorial uh, defense uh, people who's 23-year-old uh, programmer. And he was describing his experiences. And at the end of the interview, he said, I'm just a simple guy. I'm just 23 years old. And... I'm just doing what I can. And they're like, well, how was it? He's like, it was really scary. I could hear the bullets flying, uh, explosions. And I, I just, you know, I just tried to shoot the enemy. And that's that's what we're all doing. Um, and it's just a harrowing experience to to listen to young kids whose life is ahead of them. And yet it it's so transient, it could just stop at any moment with one bullet. And this is just one guy, but multiplied by by number of people. Um, 17% of Ukrainian um, military is female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there are females fighting as well. Um, and uh, one of the first uh, female fighter jet pilots have been shot down and killed on 27th of February. So the losses are all encompassing and just uh, the human tragedy um, is, is just too painful. And I also saw information today, another poll that I believe 76 people, 76% of Ukrainian population are actually ready to take guns and resist Russian invasion. So it is, 
a very large group of people who are willing to sacrifice their life or change their life forever, right? Um, people who are willing to stay with their fathers and fight with them. Because I do know a couple of families where women refuse to leave and they say, well, if you fight, I will go fight with you too, which with whatever I can do, whether it is participating in, in combat or, uh, you know, preparing nets or making Molotov cocktails that are called Ukrainian smoothies now, apparently. Uh, and uh, a couple of days ago, they were actually trending on Twitter in food and drink section. Uh, yeah, so there's some there, there's some light in this darkness, um, and we're trying to to find something that is absurdly funny about this. But 76%, if you think of it, is three fourth of the population that within the country that is ready to fight and who do we have within the country in most cases now it is men and women who refuse to leave and this is such an important uh, image because as i mentioned previously this is also a, a war, hybrid war a war over information and disinformation i just read the opinion of a disinformation expert who actually was suggesting this sort of images are very very helpful the molotov cocktails trending in the food section or actually it's a good idea to be tweeting and retweeting images of ukrainians fleeing with their pets because then those images get pushed in these various places in the social media space. And it is always good to get that information out rather than to allow for the vacuum, which might allow Russian misinformation to spread. So, I mean, that is something that we should think about, right? We have seen these images of women giving birth in the metro station. We have seen the makeshift uh, delivery wards in the basements. We have seen this absolutely heartbreaking images, but also images showing the resilience of the people who are there in the metro stations, in their basements, uh, in, in various places. So uh, all of us can actually contribute to making sure that images uh, like this are seen uh, and the heroes are being celebrated because now we have heroes being born uh, as well. And that's part of what is happening here. So I want to um, to 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 because we do want to eventually get to some questions and answers, but we have sort of like a, a, a few other points that we want to talk about uh, first. I also want to make the quick observation that as a historian, I have been thinking a lot about this rhetoric uh, that uh, we are seeing in the news a lot, that this is an unprecedented war, and in many ways it is. Its scale is terrifying. The thought that Putin thinks he can attack a sovereign country of 44 million people, uh, un uh, uh, you know, uh, and remain untouched is really, I mean, it shows you, uh, uh, you know, I mean, just the state of mind this person is. Um, um, but at the same time, I want to note that if we think about the very recent past, we are also going to see patterns in this conflict that we should have been able to see before with clarity. Russia was also involved in the Syrian conflict of 2015-2016 and sent and actually committed many war crimes in Syria. The same troops and same military tactics have been used against civilians in Syria. Uh, and we should have been able to recognize that. I mean, many of us remember the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s. And something that we need to also remember is that there's no reason for us to allow the Yugoslav conflict to transform into the protracted conflict in Bosnia that lasted for three years and ended up, you know, with the siege of Sarajevo. We don't want to see the siege of Kiev. And we need to make sure that this doesn't happen, right? So I think that there are things there that we need to mark as unprecedented, but we also need to remember that there are people out there who have expertise, who have knowledge, who have seen this before, and there are people who can actually give good, solid advice, both to Western advisors, Western governments, but also to the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian military forces. And people are doing this. People are actually assembling PR task force. They're assembling military advice task force. Task force. They're assembling, you know, civilian military defense task force, providing knowledge to the Ukrainian people how to handle this pro, uh, this this uh, tremendous uh, tragedy. That's just something that we need uh, to to note here. May, may I add something to this? 
Um, it is, it is unprecedented. It's not because well, Ukraine has lived in state of war with Russia for eight years now, right? Uh, in 2014, part of Ukraine was annexed and then invaded by Russian, not Russian forces, but uh, separatist movements that are largely backed by Russia. There is no way to deny this. The presence is obvious. So we were ready for a larger invasion. We didn't, we're not ready for this kind of full-scale invasion, but we did. We were aware of what it can extend into. And I think this is part of the reason why the pushback is so strong from the military and from the people, because for eight years we studied where the closest shelter is and what to take there. You know, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but if you go to university in Ukraine and if you're a man, you kind of have to go through military training or go serve into army later. And a lot of women do that. I remember being uh, my junior year, this is when a lot of my female colleagues started taking those classes and started uh, learn how to shoot a gun and load um, their, how do you call it? You get the idea. And how to provide first aid, right? So we have been not necessarily training actively for eight years, but we knew what we lacked in 2014 when this happened first. And we worked very hard to fill in those blanks and, uh, you know, be ready for worst case scenario, better be safe than sorry, right? And this is, this is the case with Ukraine now. I have to say that training for military action for females is something new because when I was in, in university, right after the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, all the females were, it was very genderized. So we got the uh, training to be a military nurse. So I'm officially a military nurse and technically I'm able to provide the first aid and do the intramuscular injections and things like this. But even further back, uh, even further than 2014, uh, the history of Russia and Ukraine goes back many, many hundreds uh, of years. And I just I just want to bring uh, some artifact here. This is history of Ukraine by Subtelny and uh, there's plenty of uh, complete history uh, recently they have been published um, also by Sergei Plohi uh, is another good source to he, he publishes a lot of books on the subject uh, but this is uh, how big this book is and it starts at least a few thousands years before B BC and going going forward but really uh, the the con concept of Ukraine as a nation at uh, 988, 900 um, uh, AD. So, and uh, the Russia only became Russia uh, after it captured Ukraine in, in 1709, after the, the battle with, with Swedes and when it completely mass massacred the Cossack settlement of Baturin. So uh, the tactics that Russia is using right now is not really very different from the, the tactics that it had used for centuries past, unfortunately. And of course, um, Vladimir Putin likes to use historical arguments or rather likes to create false historical narratives and to misuse historical narratives. So I'm very happy Although we don't need to do this in detail, but uh, I mean, as a historian, I'm very happy to, to address these questions later on. I am also happy to uh, the library to provide resources for catching up on that. I do want to, to say categorically, to dispel categorically several um, falsehoods that are circulating out there about the history of Ukraine. Ukraine is not the invention of the Soviet Union and uh, Lenin, something that uh, Putin and his cronies are trying to make us believe. Uh, Ukraine has a long history, as Mariana uh, uh, mentioned, but also Ukraine has uh, its own independence movement that developed separate from the Russian state and the Russian democracy, uh, excuse me, bureaucracy, 
no democracy in Russia yet, the Russian bureaucracy and uh, also uh, the Ukrainian people have uh, often suffered the, uh, the suppression and oppression uh, of the Soviet Union, most famously with the collectivization in the 1930s and the enforced famine against some 4 million Ukrainians who perished as a result uh, of uh, what you might actually describe as a genocide as a, uh, against the Ukrainians. Um, even though um, Putin wants us to believe that the Ukrainians are committing a genocide somewhere in the East, uh, which is obviously something that is not happening, hasn't been documented. Uh, international organizations who have access to that um, have not uh, raised alarm or uh, over certain you know, th things like that. Now, Ukrainian history is complex, but also the Ukrainian state since 2014 has made very decisive uh, steps in the right direction of acknowledging some of its at least complicity uh, in World War II with various crimes, including, um, you know, the Babin Yar Memorial that was just hit or was almost hit. Now we are learning just an adjacent building was actually hit. The Ukrainians have tried to also honor the Jews that perished uh, in their country or Jews related to their country, right? Who perished in World War II. So um, I am happy to talk more about this. I don't know that this needs to be the focus of our conversation, but I just wanted to point out that Putin is making many false claims that need to be verified and debunked. Um, uh, and then there is plenty of sound historical scholarship out there. So I'm going to turn to you to, to maybe ask another question, because that is perhaps something that people can get a better sense of. So as a historian, I was very much struck that Putin tried to use the shared history of Ukrainians and Russians to pit them against each other. Whereas in his speech delivered in Russian, Zelensky actually tried to appeal to a shared history between Russians and Ukrainians, specifically in Ukraine, where there are many Russian speakers, right? And so forth. So I wanted you both to maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what is the role of language? What is the role of religion? You know, we don't need to be exhaustive here, but I think it's also important to recognize that there are Russian speaking Ukrainians. Right. Yes. <laughs> to be honest, I do not remember the language being an issue till 2014, till the annexation of Crimea, because this was the first um, this this was the first event I remember. Um, so as a result of the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, there was a stronger push for giving Ukrainian language a little bit more protection in Ukraine. So, uh, for example, more presence of Ukrainian in media and more translation of film into Ukrainian, more publishing in Ukraine, kind of a step towards safeguarding it as part of the identity or national identity of Ukraine. And also kind of speaking to the constitution of Ukraine, where it says that Ukrainian language is the official language of Ukraine. And what was happening in Crimea um, was uh, the fear or the planted fear of um, Russians, ethnic Russians and Russian speakers being forced into speaking the Nazi language of Ukraine, the Ukrainian language. And this kind of narrative fled into Donbass area. And this, um, and this, this, those were the first instances where I remember the language being an issue. I grew up in a Russian speaking part of Ukraine. I spoke Russian most of my life. My school was in Russian. Almost everything I learned was in Russian, but I had Russian and Ukrainian language or classes, and I had Russian and Ukrainian literature classes, and there were multiple uh, Russian-speaking schools in my city. And Zaporizhia used to be the only city in Ukraine where Russian was the second official language. So I'm not sure what kind of uh, oppression of Russian speakers we're talking about, because it's definitely not an issue. And even after 2014 and 2015, when um, Ukrainian got more popular in, you know, just because of Russia 
And a lot of a lot of people converting to speaking Ukrainian as a result to invasion, as you know, result of this kind of trauma. My mom never did. And we traveled to Western part of Ukraine that speak Ukrainian. And there was no problem with that. I remember any kind of aggressive remarks towards a Russian speaker there. And I still don't, when I go to Ukraine and have to speak Russian to someone who does not speak Ukrainian. Uh, and there are people in Ukraine that do not speak Ukraine at all. And they are considered citizens of the country that can function on almost any level. I know a lot of businesses that even though all the documentation is in Ukrainian, will speak in Russian in their offices because the, the office will be predominantly Russian speaking. Um, yeah, so I think, and this is this is why their speeches are so different because Zelensky, Zelensky is from a Russian speaking part of Ukraine and he is and used to be a Russian speaker, Ukrainian speaker of Russia for a very long time. And this is how he actually built his career as an entertainer. Uh, most of uh, his film productions and different programming was written in Russian and was televised in Russian. Uh, so he relates to this question of Russian versus Ukrainian very closely because he is from that part of the country where Russian was used as a weapon against Ukraine and Ukraine's democracy. So you think it's propaganda again, basically, oh, right? Yes, we yes. We need to be clear about that. Manipulation. If, if not propaganda, then manipulation. If nothing else, really, it's Ukrainian language that needs protection because it's just overwhelmingly in print, especially since the dissolution of Soviet Union. Soviet Union, the lingua franca was was Russian and uh, the educational institutions, cultural institutions very much uh, focused on doing everything in Russian because that was a mark of the kind of higher class experience. And then the course of the Russian empire domination, there, were, there was a point of uh, Ukrainian language to be completely banned. Um, and so after 1991, uh, it took a while for Ukrainian language, and Ukrainian culture to start resurfacing again. But if you start flipping through the radio stations, uh, the, the large majority of songs that are performed, uh, the talk shows, they were actually in, uh, in Russian. So uh, it, was, it, it was quite uh, a dominant uh, presence. So it, as far as the, the oppression goes and as far as the underrepresentation, Ukrainian language is the one that was underrepresented. But a lot of people uh, have been asking me, what's the, so how similar is the Russian and Ukrainian? And uh, is, there, is there an overlap? Um, Ukrainian is part of the Slavic uh, family of, uh, of, of languages. And actually, Ukrainian language is the closest to, I actually had to look it up today, um, linguistic research here. Um, it actually is the closest to uh, Belarusian. Uh, Russian language is very close to Bulgarian, actually. So Russians are closer to Bulgarian than language. Uh, and after Belarusian or Belarus language, Ukrainian is also closer to Slovak, Polish, and Czech first before we get to Russian language. So if we compare Ukrainian and Russian to other European languages, it would be more like um, Spanish and Italian. So that degree of similarity uh, or French and Portuguese. But of course, Ukraine's biggest border is with Russia, and there's a cross-cultural, cross-language uh, interaction uh, that, that had affected. There's, a, there's some similarity in vocabulary, but similarity is as, as, as close as those uh, countries that I had mentioned. And I'm just going to note quickly um, that what we also think with the current conflict is, of course, that people are now mobilizing behind their uh, language. And we're hearing all these stories of people who have previously only spoken Russian at home, who are now switching to Ukrainian as a actually sign of patriotism and commitment to their country. So, in fact, the war is actually having the opposite effect. I might ask you to reflect on one final question before we possibly turn to our audience, because I do want to provide the opportunity for any of you to ask uh, uh, questions. And of course, if you if there's anything else that you know you want to share here, please uh, please uh, do. Just one little thing on the language issue. While there is this push towards speaking Ukrainian, I am noticing that there is an acceptance and growing acceptance of the. Ukrainian, the Russian speaking Ukrainian identity. So those people identify 
as Ukrainians who are Russian speakers who do not convert into Ukrainian on purpose, but they still identify as Ukrainians. And I'm also noticing the emergence of, you know, Ukrainian Russian, uh, because culturally it is affected by Ukraine more than Russia, right? It is linguistically affected by contacts with Ukrainian language because it's just inevitable not to hear them both at the same time during one day and you will hear a couple more languages too. So there is this, there are two different processes, but what I'm noticing is tolerance towards both scenarios because there's also this remembering that Russian was used as a weapon against Ukraine now. So maybe we should actually acknowledge those people that live here. And it is roughly half of the Ukrainian population who still identify as Russian speakers at home or as predominantly Russian speakers at home and outside. And there is this try attempt to embrace them into you know, the national code of Ukraine. So it is becoming a multilinguistic nation. Thank you. Uh, so great to have uh, a cultural studies, uh, right, person into languages to actually explain these things uh, in such great uh, detail. That's why we need this humanities and social sciences research here, right? Just a little pitch. So I, I want to this, this question because there has been a lot of discussion in the news about NATO, about the EU, about the Western aspirations and orientation of Ukraine. And uh, Ukraine became an independent country in 1991. Can you speak to some of the key moments and most important aspects of independent Ukraine's orientation vis-a-vis the West, both in terms of um, policy, but also cultural orientation and the identity of the Ukrainian people. Just maybe a few examples each one of you can provide uh, to uh, to illustrate that. Well, I wanted to note first uh, and foremost that uh, Ukraine had declared independence multiple times, albeit for a very short period of time before 1991, um, and had always been oriented to the West. In fact, um, uh, one of the uh, actually, the, the the blood of most of the monarch families in Europe has a little bit of Ukrainian blood too. So you know, at least you know, genetically, there is a huge connection. Um, so that was this Western orientation, not just since '91, but long before. Um, I would imagine since '91, uh, uh, there was a Orange Revolution, 2004. Uh, that was one key point uh, that co- corresponded to the elections uh, and fraud associated with elections and two candidates, one pro-Russian, pro-East, the other one is pro-Western, uh, pro-market reforms. And then uh, people came uh, to protest the unfairness of uh, cheating in elections and then elections rerun again and the pro-Western candidate won. So there was one key point and I'll leave the rest to Mikita that he could address. Oh, yes. And that pro-Western president got replaced by pro-Russian president who fled the country um, in 2014. But as for, uh, you know, where do we lean and what is the connection with West? And what I'm noticing, at least in my generation, is this desire to have the quality of life that people in the EU or broadly in the West have. Uh, human rights. And I see a lot of growing movement of feminism, uh, queer rights, animal rights too. People against animal cruelty is a huge thing. And there were so many protests that eventually resulted in circuses banning animals to be part of their programming. So um, if not necessarily, you know, becoming members of NATO or European Union before the events of 2013 and 14, people wanted to have a higher quality of life and better protection in, with law and to law to function within the country. So I get corruption, like you mentioned in the 2004 election, the Orange Revolution that was against corruption and cheating. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, we are a big part of European family. And no, we are culturally, historically, we are. But um, there's always, you know, 
not every nation perceives events in the same way, right? Not every nation has the same desires. And when we talk about feminism, for example, there's American feminism, there is, uh, you know, French feminism, there is African feminism, same place to Ukraine. We have very different core values, but we sometimes interpret them in slightly different ways. But generally it is freedom, equality, safety, um, um, social rights, I don't know, human rights in general that we kind of value and want. But I also want to note, because uh, I, I want to emphasize that it's a very important point, what precipitated the events of 2014, which led to the first Russian invasion in Crimea, was the uh, unequivocal support in Ukraine for the pro-EU and pro-Western orientation of their country. Uh, when the pro-Russian president, right, who tried Yanukovych. to Yanukovych, right? And, and what, what later term was termed the revolution of dignity. And if you've seen the documentary Winter on Fire, Netflix has it streaming right now. And if you go to Netflix, that's the first thing that comes out. So that's probably the easiest way to understand what was happening. Like but, but what happened in 2014 is uh, Ukrainians rallying, and you were there in Kiev on the on the square in, in you know Maidan, rallying for their right to choose sovereignly and independently the direction in which their country will go. And in many ways, this is what this conflict is about. This has nothing to do about all of these megalomaniac ideas that are coming from Russia. This has to do with the sovereign right of an independent country to choose through democratic means the direction that country is going to, to take. And since 2014, Ukrainians have unequivocally actually supported this Western orientation. And something else I'm just going to say that and we'll turn uh, to the audience uh, is uh, we, we spoke about that. I mean, Ukrainians are now able to travel to Europe for up to three months without a visa. That was a huge boost for a population that wanted to get reintegrated with Europe culturally, economically, socially, in, in, in you know, arts, culture, rights, and all, all the social movements and so forth. So is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't mentioned before we open it to the audience? Well, I'm sure people would want to know how they can help and what they can do, and we can address it towards the very end, I guess. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I have this in mind that we're going to uh, definitely talk about it. But uh, thank you so much for being so patient and listening uh, to us uh, for a good 45 minutes. I think it's important for us to also um, ask any questions. If you have anything, any questions, uh, there were those note cards. Uh, we just felt that that might be a better way to... And then we have people on Zoom who are submitting questions, correct? So there's a question about the hybrid nature of this war. In other words, how is this um, war being influenced by the fact that this is happening also on social media, people are having cell phones and documenting episodes and confrontations that otherwise may not have made it to the media. But of course, that is also related to the disinformation side of it, because there is a lot of false information on social media and you might get in an algorithm that provides uh, you know, this sort of information. Um, any observations on that front? Well, if I may, the, the, the scary thing is the, the bombing of the square in Kharkiv uh, that actually footage provided uh, was used by Russian propaganda TV in saying that actually, oh, Ukrainians uh, are the ones who bombed it and uh, Ukrainian Ukrainians in Kharkiv are now wanted to be rescued and they plead for Putin to rescue them from the evil Ukrainian army, which of course is just taking the fact and completely reversing it um, 180 degrees. So this is just one example. Um, and also another tactic that we see quite often on social media and other media is that uh, the Russian propaganda machine, which is a mighty machine, it has been honed for the years of the Soviet uh, empire. And uh, they just keep on repeating things 
and eventually they echo and come back and it creates this um, kind of echo chamber magnified and multiplied uh, and to the point where many people start thinking that there must be some truth to it or this must be true if everyone is saying it. And in this context, we have another question here. What are some of the most reliable best sources of information uh, that you might recommend? English language, perhaps. Uh, there might be some Russian speakers here in our audience. Uh, Bexley does have uh, a large community of um, refugees from the Soviet Union as well. I don't think that there is a clear and reliable source anytime and especially in wartime because you know you just it's just it's impossible to stay unbiased on both sides of the conflict right um what i suggest to my students and everyone i know is taking several sources and comparing 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 and i know i know it's a horribly difficult task even for me as a speaker of both languages you know someone who's been doing it for many times now for many years but um, there are some sources that are more or less reliable. For example, Nova Evremia, New Time, um, I think that is the name. Um, they made a choice, an editorial choice, the journalist, to switch to using the language that is allowed by the Russian state to cover the events in Ukraine, to be able to cover the events in Ukraine. So if you're not familiar, the word war is not allowed to be used in Russia. They're only allowed to use these, you know, operation. So this group of people decided to switch to the official language or the allowed language, but to remain, you know, to keep this opportunity to not be banned and actually reach out to people and cover the events in the most objective way they can, provided, you know, what resources they have. Um, so if I were to suggest anything, choose several sources from both sides. Most of them are translated into English now. And uh, don't let yourself believe in only one article. Try to compare as much as you can and uh, just trust your judgment, really. You know, if you think, oh, this is a little too far-fetched, maybe, maybe there is maybe there is some grain of this is not true and I need to double check. But for sure, RT and Sputnik are definitely the the hands of the Russian government and the uh, major um, ways to inject the propaganda. And so, don't use those sources uh, clearly. as well. Ria Novosti, useless. Uh, Meduza, if you heard of this, Meduza is a, is actually a used to be a Russian magazine that resides in if I. I'm not mistaken in Lithuania, so they have a little bit more freedom. Um, and then there's Dorzd, that is now TV Rain, that is now banned in Russia, but they still function. So from America, you can read them. TV Rain, they're available on online. But English language, The Economist is a good source. Mm -hmm. um, US Ukraine Foundation, um, Washington Post, it's just a uh, uh, these are reputable uh, publications that existed for 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 decades. Uh, Foreign Affairs magazine offers a detailed um, analysis of the situation quite often. The Week is uh, is a British edition that compiles all the publication across the uh, political spectrum, so you get more or less objective perception of reality. So there's many options. Uh, just use your judgment, but also reliable sources that 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 you know of that have reputation. How about some of the Ukrainian journalists like Kiev Independent? I mean, what what uh, what do you think about those sources? Are um, they... I'm not really to tell you the truth. I'm not really. Um, I know Kiev Independent is pretty good, uh, but I'm following actually people on the ground. Uh, for example, Mikhailo Vinitsky is the professor uh, at Kiev Mohila Academy me and he's posting publicly on Facebook about events and his experiences and I trust his judgment. Uh, he's Canadian, uh, Ukrainian uh, and, and so he was trained uh, in, in, in Western countries and then went uh, to Ukraine to teach there so his judgment is sound and he has a good academic reputation. So I would trust that that's the new source for me. Okay, so so definitely there we, there's this aspect of the war as well. We have this other question here. So we have been seeing um, 
A growing number of Russians protesting and being detained and arrested. Do we have an accurate information now? Um, do we know how many people uh, uh, you know, have protested? We also hearing, for example, Russians now actually are fleeing to Georgia, to Armenia, um, trying to escape Russia as a sign of protest. And these are places they can still go to because right, they can't go to many other countries currently. And many uh, Russians are actually trying to express their disagreement with uh, the Putin regime by going to some of these other countries. Uh, do you have any sense uh, about what level of protest? Well, there was some protest, but then people were rounded up and uh, dispersed fairly fast. Uh, if everybody in Russia came to the streets, obviously they couldn't be all arrested. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's a proportion of population. And it sounds like St. Petersburg is uh, more active than Moscow in this respect. Traditionally, it's been the center of um, culture, intellectual, kind of critical thinking and such. So that might be something to be said for that. But uh, it's not everybody who's out there on the street. That's just relatively small proportion of population. But if we were to talk about the numbers of people that are imprisoned now, we're talking about thousands of people that are detained, um, which is scary. And at some point, the number of the number that was provided by the Ukrainian government of Russian soldiers that uh, deceased in Ukraine, a number of people that were detained in Russia matched. So we're talking about thousands, thousands of people. Um, and maybe this is a related question. Do we know um, what the Russian speakers in Donetsk and Luhansk right now are doing and what their reaction is to the invasion? Is there any information on that that we know? I lost all of my contact with that region a long time ago. There's only one friend who told me that his parents are fine and the areas are not as affected. Mm -hmm. So they are in relative safety. Let's mm -hmm. just put it this way. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a very interesting question here, which um, uh, has to do with what has been reported about uh, students, uh, international students from various countries not being uh, allowed to board evacuation trains and not being able to um, exit the country. Maybe I address that to make sure that you guys as Ukrainians are not perceived somehow as partial to that question. So I, I am a scholar of the global socialist world and uh, are as part of that history uh, I mean, there are international students, international workers in many of the countries in Eastern Europe, even though those are actually not possibly as visible as other aspects. And we have been seeing this sort of coverage, but what is also clear is that in some cases, some of the students have sadly been abandoned by their own governments and they don't have the papers that are, uh, allow them to cross. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the presence of racism, uh, I mean, as in, in many other places in Europe uh, and uh, in this country, there is racism, right? So, I mean, it is uh, it is probably in some cases also an aspect of that. But there are, I mean, there are some real difficulties that the Ukrainian government is dealing with right now. Uh, and it is, it seems to me, prioritizing women and children uh, in these evacuations. But I am also happy for uh, for the rest of you to, to handle that. Uh, I do want to say that I just actually participated in a book discussion called uh, on a book called Socialism Goes Global. And the image of that book was a woman wearing a Ukrainian costume greeting a African student. So there is a long history also of solidarities between Eastern Europeans and people from the global South. And we have to understand that this is a very complicated topic. So it's actually difficult to say, you know, it's not black and white. Uh, we have this, I knew someone would ask this question. Do we know what Putin really wants? Uh, right? Um, I don't know if anyone, wants to broach that. Um, I mean, my, maybe I rephrase this question and, and say, do we have a sense of what might stop the fighting and allow people to, 
to take a breath and not be shelled and, and maybe allow negotiations and maybe allow international intervention. So what do you think? We are past the negotiations. This question is existential. There's two outcomes. Um, either Ukraine ceases to exist, uh, with most of the people perished, or Russia stops this uh, imperial colonial movement and, and, and view in Ukraine in such a way. We do know what, uh, what Putin wants. In fact, um, he stated it. He said it to all of us. And here I'm just going to take um, Ukraine and Russia and I change it for Germany and France. And this is what his statement says, if we translate it into European terms so it could be understood better. Germany is an anti-French project constructed by British authors. There has been no Germany for a long time. Saarland is French land and all of the Germany will be part of France and there will be no Germany. So if, if here France is Russia and Germany is Ukraine, this is what the statement is. And he stated it uh, in his article published in July 2021. So he stated it. We know how he views the reality. He uh, he views that the, the 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 Russians are circled by the the Western countries that are evil, and uh, everybody is against Russia and the, the imperial project. And he knows that the Russian Empire is impossible without Ukraine, as the events of 1709 had had proven. And so he wants. Ukraine back as part of the Russian Empire. And that's why all this mythology and all this propaganda and ideology. But he, there's only two solutions. Um, and uh, no negotiation uh, would solve this existential problem of either Ukraine ceases to exist and then the Russian Empire starts progressing and taking over, um, or uh, Ukraine is, is supported by the world and uh, Russia stops being an empire. I know you don't want to hear that, right? But I mean, is partition what is, right? You don't want to hear that. That has been tried multiple times. It has past. been. And right, I don't know, we, because the, the fighting has to stop. The war has to stop. An existential war means a nation of 44 million. How, how many million refugees? How many people dying? How many of your body parts would you sacrifice? Yeah. To live? Would you give your arm yeah. and leg? How, how much can you live with or without, rather, I should say? I very much respect. And I, I, don't, I don't think partition is possible because if we look at previous cases of partitioning, right, um, religion was a big part of it. Language was a big part of it, right? We were talking about the Dnipro River that divides Ukraine. Now there's no division in Ukraine. As you can see, Ukraine are actually solidified as a nation in 2014 and even more now. So even there, if there is an attempt to uh, partition Ukraine, I think that there will be such a strong resistance inside Ukraine, but there will, it will not emerge as a civil war it will emerge as, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It will be something that will force partition out of Ukraine because I don't, I don't see it happening in, we're too many people to partition now. We're, we're too close. And we kind of got this 30 year of more or less successful democracy that the last five, seven years proved to be a very productive place because even with war happening in our country, we had growing GDP, we had so many changes in our policies. You know, we got the grasp of what, how cool it is to be democratic or the potential of it. So partition, it may be offered and I see that happening. And it may be accepted, but will the people accept it? That's the point, because, right, we are a big force, too. You're right. You're right. I've seen the post on Facebook, and there were really nasty comments, really angry comments to that proposal of partition. Mm -hmm. um, how can we help? I know that many of you want uh, to know that. Um, or can we just quickly refer people to, to places um, that they can maybe volunteer, donate money, send supplies, read up, participate in the disinformation campaign? What do you have to offer? 
the most important thing that anyone could do right now is contact your representatives uh, and the White House and ask for more serious actions, not just words. Uh, words are good and support is important. And um, as many volunteers in Ukraine say that information war is being successful for, for Ukraine so far, uh, but their bodies um, and their innocent people dying um, and the fate of democracy and the global order um, and peace uh, is, is affected. And if we stand by and do nothing, uh, this will not end well for everyone in the world. Uh, this is not just some small insignificant country. Um, it's a highly symbolic um, country. And it's uh, the battle that it seems to me we should be fighting, but instead we're letting Ukraine fight for the world. The fight for peace, the fight for democracy, and fight for freedom. We outsourcing it in in the in the in the world of global economy. So contact your representatives. There is also a mega site uh, how people outside of Ukraine can help Ukraine. And um, I was mentioning to the uh, uh, library administrators that those people who have registered for the event, I can forward this website to the administrators, and they can forward it. And it's a conglomerate of how you can help. And it shows every single step that you can take, um, including petitions, uh, humanitarian aid. Um, and it sorted out all the web pages together by subject. So if you want to help humanitarian wise, click this and there's a list of organizations. If you want to help this way, click on this tab and there's, so it's quite cleverly you, done. Because the people in attendance here are, are not going to receive an email. Can you just oh. uh, tell us what the yeah, website is? Yeah, the website is, is uh, how to help Ukraine now. And it's how dash to dash help dash. So it's uh, connected right. with the dashes, how to help Ukraine now dot super dot site. And if you did register and you are in person, we do have your emails, so we can email you that. Um, but if you didn't, if you just showed up and didn't register, we have a um, form in the back where you can put your email too, if you would like that. And we also will be sending other resources. We probably are, um, you know, our time is up. We want to respect uh, everyone's time. Uh, I really want to thank you, uh, Mariana and uh, Mikita, for having this conversation with us. Your insights were just like wonderful. Every time I listen to you, I learn something new, and I have been in several conversations with you uh, over the last uh, week. And thank you all for being here. And um, Solidarity with Ukraine. Uh, and um, thank you. Thank you for being here and for helping us at least win the war against disinformation and the false narratives, and then taking perhaps some next steps. Thanks for tuning into the BPL podcast today. I hope you learned as much as I did. To find out more about the Bexley Public Library, including events, visit our website, bexleylibrary.org, or the handle at Bexley Library across all social media platforms. Email me with any comments, questions, or suggestions at podcast at bexleylibrary.org. Thank you.